0: well, welcome again to Placerita Bible Church. If you do have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We've kicked off the book of Acts at the beginning of this new year. This morning we'll be in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 1. And I've entitled the message this morning as the power of a witness. The power of a witness from Acts chapter 1. So we're excited again about just being here. And about uh, being in this new book and discovering together what God has for us as we work through the book of Acts, the power of a witness, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. The author, Luke, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed By his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when they had said these things, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you look standing into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to dive into your word this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we might hear all that Christ is saying to his disciples and still today to us as the living word. We pray that we would be encouraged today, that we would be blessed today, that we would be challenged today to lift high the name of Christ over all else. And it's in Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen. Well, there was a Chinese farmer who lived and worked in rural China on a rice farm. As this farmer aged, he found that his eyesight was getting worse and worse until he could not see at all. Finally, he was seen by a missionary doctor who removed the cataracts from his eyes. He could see again. Overjoyed to have his sight back, the farmer then ventured back into the interior of China, And after only a few days had passed, the missionary doctor looked out of his bamboo window and noticed that the formerly blind man was holding the front end of a long rope that had five other farmers holding onto the rope, walking into the missionary doctor because they too could not see. They all knew that the farmer had been blind. And when he had told them that he could now see, they wanted to come and meet the doctor who had cured the blind man. The cured man could not explain the physiology of the eye or the technique of the operation, but he could tell others that he had been blind and that the doctor had operated on him and now he could see that all that was all that these other blind people needed to hear. They, they came to the doctor expecting the same treatment. This blind man was a powerful witness to bring his friends to get help. And so it is with our Christian lives today. You are called to be a powerful witness to bring people to the great physician of the soul, Jesus Christ And you don't have to be a missionary doctor in China to be an incredible witness for the gospel. We do not all need to be trained theologians. You don't have to be able to explain supralapsarianism or infralapsarianism. You don't have to be able to explain Arminianism or Calvinism. You don't have to be able to explain dispensationalism or covenantalism. Right? Those things are all important and they have their place in theology. But in order to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, all you have to do is clearly explain the gospel. You don't have to understand all the intricacies and the mysteries of God. You don't have to be a flawless example of a Christian. You don't have to have memorized the 23rd Psalm. Though I think every mature Christian ought to know that psalm in your heart at some point, right? It's a wonderful thing to do. But I'm just saying you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, or Billy Graham. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher, a biblical counselor. You don't even have to sing in the choir. We don't have a choir. Sorry about that, folks. But if you are in Christ this morning, we can all be witnesses. The power of a witness is second only to the sovereign grace of God in bringing someone to salvation. He almost always uses a witness. He doesn't have to. He could just use his word. He can reveal the special revelation through the spirit to a person, uh, through the Bible, right? But if you think about it, how did you come to Christ? Was it just that you were in a hotel room and you picked up your Bible and read it and got saved? That happens to some people, and I think that's awesome. Every time I hear a testimony like that when they get into here, I'm like, "Praise God, He works through His word." But so many of us, if you're going to be honest about how you came to Christ, it was through the power of a witness. It was your mom. It was your dad. It was your Sunday school teacher, your youth pastor. It was a Christian friend or family member who continued to talk to you about Christ. And finally, you began to look into God's word and God opened up the scripture to you in such a way that you repented and were born again. And that happened through God's word by the sovereign grace of God, but he used a witness The power of a witness second only to the sovereign grace of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning that as you come to Christ and as you become a Christian, now we are witnesses to the death and to the burial and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can share what happened to you with someone else. And not only that, that when you share the gospel with others... Think about the impact it has not only on them, but how they then go into the interior of their sphere of influence, to their friends and to their family and to their loved ones, and they share the gospel with them. And you, you, you could be like that missionary doctor looking out of your bamboo window as you see souls of those holding the rope who've had their sins forgiven, and they're they're coming to be born again. They're coming to Christ, and you're watching that person you witnessed to, now witnessing to someone else as we see exponential growth in the kingdom. That's really what happens in the book of Acts. As the church kicks off, as the new covenant is fully inaugurated, as Christ is going to be ascending into heaven, we're looking at it this morning, as the Holy Spirit comes in power, we see witnesses giving the gospel to other people who become Christians and witnesses of the gospel, and the church grows and grows and grows. And so Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, as we look at the power of a witness, in order to be a powerful witness, I think that it's important that you learn some of the principles in this text. If you're going to be able to accurately and passionately tell others about Christ, this text outlines for us three essential truths. God's kingdom, the Holy Spirit's power, and Christ's ascension. And understanding these important truths will help you be a powerful witness for Christ. So let's look at the first one together if we can. Number one in our outline is God's kingdom. And here's your first blank if you're taking notes this morning. It's a question. Is spirit baptism linked with the coming kingdom? Is spirit baptism linked with the coming kingdom? Look at verses six and seven. So when they had come together together, They asked him, this would be the disciples who were together, and they asked the Lord Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Now, the question again, is spirit baptism linked with the coming kingdom? Now, if you look back at verse 3, you will notice that Jesus had been appearing in his resurrected body to the disciples for the last 40 days, and he had been giving them many proofs of his bodily resurrection. And we see there at the end of verse 3, it says that he had been speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Then in verses 4 and 5, he tells them to stay put in Jerusalem and that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the question again we're asking, is spirit baptism linked to the kingdom of God? And the answer is yes. In other words, it's not as if the disciples were just all of a sudden interested in asking Jesus some eschatological question, a question about the future of the church or of Christians of end times, like out of the blue. They're not just like, hey, when are you coming back? The reason they're asking, when is it that God will restore the kingdom to Israel is because Jesus has been talking about the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's coming, the Holy Spirit's coming, the Holy Spirit's coming. So the disciples were thinking like, oh, oh, we've read our Bible. We know a little bit about the Old Testament. We realize that every time you talk about the Holy Spirit and the prophets of old, that it's something to do with the ushering in of the kingdom of God. And so their question wasn't just kind of off at a left field. It was connected with this idea of understanding the outpouring of the Spirit. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah. Isaiah in your Old Testament, chapter 32, if you will, Isaiah 32, and I'm going to show you a couple of places this morning how we see how the outpouring of the Spirit is directly related to the kingdom of God. There is a connection between the outpouring of the Spirit and the kingdom of God, and as you're turning there to Isaiah 32, Isaiah 32, this chapter contrasts the king of righteousness with many of the bad leaders that Israel had suffered under. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 32 says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. And so this is a reference to the messianic king and to his coming kingdom. And when will this happen? Well, Isaiah says that it is when the messianic king reigns and when the spirit Comes, look down at verse 15. At 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet, resting places. Now, I don't know about you, but that's sounding pretty good to me about right now. It'd be nice to be able to be dwelling in a secure dwelling, in quiet, restful places, where God says his people will abide in a peaceful habitation. The question is, well, when is this going to take place, and what is he talking about? I believe that he's talking about the millennium. And he's talking about a kingdom that will be restored to Israel. And at that time, in a sense, it will be a sort of utopia similar to what was happening in the Garden of Eden before the fall of Adam. And it'll be a time when Christ comes, he'll be reigning there, Isaiah 32, 1, and his people will be filled with peace and they'll be filled with tranquility and the land will be fruitful. It's a physical kingdom that he's describing here. And when does that kingdom come? that kingdom comes when the Spirit, again, verse 15, it comes when the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. It's a connection between the pouring out of the Spirit and the millennial kingdom. You see it there in Isaiah. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26. Isn't it good to dust off the pages of your Old Testament this morning? Isaiah chapter 36, 26 verse 26 is where we read about one of the places where we read about the giving of the new covenant. And in Isaiah chapter, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 36, 26, we read this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then verse 28 says, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Well, I don't know about you, but it sounds a whole lot like a kingdom where Christ will dwell in the land with his people. And so again, we're starting to see a connection here. It happens when God puts a new spirit within his people. In fact, if you'll turn over to chapter 39, still there in Ezekiel, 39 verses 28 through 29, it says, Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, then assembled them again, or assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. So we're seeing here that all these things happen when God pours out the Holy Spirit on the house of Israel. One more Old Testament passage. Turn with me. Keep going to the right to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, one of the minor prophets with a significant prophecy in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where we read this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What are we learning this morning? Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel all talk about a coming kingdom, which is accompanied by a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples were right in asking Jesus should we expect the kingdom to be restored to Israel in conjunction with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which will happen not many days from now? There's a connection, there's a link. Is the Spirit baptism linked with the coming kingdom? The answer is yes. The Holy Spirit is linked with creation. Genesis 1, 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is linked with the incarnation. Luke 1, 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and p- the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is linked with the giving of Scripture. Second Peter 1, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is linked with creation and with the incarnation, and with the inspiration of scripture, you better believe that the Holy Spirit will also be linked with the coming of the kingdom. Next question, is the kingdom spiritual or physical? Is the kingdom spiritual or physical? And the answer, I believe, to this question is both. It's both spiritual and physical. The kingdom of God has a spiritual sense about it, and it will also culminate into a physical kingdom in the millennium. Now, Jesus made it abundantly clear that the kingdom of God is not only a physical reference to the millennium, but it's also a spiritual kingdom, as Jesus, again, teaches throughout the Gospels about just that. That's why he says in Matthew 3, verse 2, Repent. Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, in that moment, I don't believe was talking about an eschatological kingdom that will happen at some point future, but he's talking about here today as he was on earth in the first century, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now. I believe is what he's saying Matthew 4:23 again uh, and he went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so we understand that Jesus is proclaiming not only a millennial kingdom that we'll see here in a moment, but he's proclaiming a kingdom now, the gospel of the kingdom. He's proclaiming, repent, believe in me, I'm the Messiah, I will die, I will be raised from the dead, I give life, it's only by my blood that you can be redeemed. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Not only that, but Jesus said on the sermon in the, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, several places references this spiritual kingdom when he says in Matthew five three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five ten, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness', sakes, uh, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew six thirty three, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And so in these verses, we are challenged to pursue kingdom living. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Radical righteousness. You want to be a Christian? You need to be wholesale, sold out to Christ in all of your thinking and in all of your behavior. And that's part of your sanctification to stay humble, to be poor in spirit, to persevere in persecution, and above all, to seek the kingdom of God. And then there's lots of parables that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, like the parable of the hidden treasure. Matthew thirteen forty four. the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in which a man found and covered up, then in his joy. He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And that's just a picture, Jesus is saying, of salvation. That Christ is the treasure, and that you got to deny yourself and sell all that you have to come to Christ. Again, the parable of the pearl of great value, Matthew 13, 45, and 46. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And I'm just saying to you, in those parables, Jesus is not talking about the millennium. He's talking about salvation now. Salvation for anyone who would repent and believe him can be part of the kingdom right now. You can be in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of heaven because there's a spiritual kingdom that exists at this moment. But there are other places where Jesus talks about a physical kingdom with an eschatological focus that will be happening at some point in the future. And that would be a reference, I believe, to the second coming and the setting up of the millennial kingdom. For example, in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus taught about that kingdom when he gives the parable of the ten virgins. Do you remember that parable when he says in Matthew 25, one, then the kingdom of heaven will be like the 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And it talked about how some of them had enough oil and some had to go get oil. And then all of a sudden, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour. So that has an eschatological focus, talking about there's also a kingdom coming when some people will be shut out, but others who have the oil that's been given to them by the spirit will be welcomed into the marriage feast. Again, there's a parable about the talents in that same chapter, the Olivet discourse, Matthew 25: 29 and 30 says, "For to everyone who has will more will be given." And he will have an abundance, but for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Again, he's referring to a a final judgment. He's saying there's there's a kingdom in the future. You're either in or you're out. In fact, in that final judgment, Matthew 25, 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the the sheep from the goats. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what are we learning again from Christ? He teaches about a spiritual kingdom where he says, repent today and become a Christian. And if you repent today and you're born again, you will be entering into the kingdom of heaven right now. And at the same point, he said, hey, but there's another kingdom that's coming in the future where there'll be a final judgment. And at that point, he's referring to a physical kingdom. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, I believe, about that physical kingdom. When they say to Jesus, hey, is this the time that that God's going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking in their minds, I believe about that, that kingdom in the future. That's your next blank. Is there a kingdom to be restored to Israel? When is that going to take place? Will that happen? And Jesus, you know, it's interesting here because Jesus could have easily said, hey, there is no physical kingdom. There's only a spiritual kingdom because there are some uh, theologies that would teach that there is no millennium. Amillennialism, for example, would teach there is no millennium. And so they would say, hey, there is no physical culmination for ethnic Israel of a future kingdom. That didn't happen. It's only spiritual and I believe that our friends who hold to that view are missing out on the clear teaching of the Old Testament and on Christ, referring to both a spiritual kingdom and to a physical kingdom. Jesus is saying, he could, and he could have clarified it right here. He could have said, hey, you guys don't understand. There is no coming of a future kingdom. It's all now. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. What did he say in verse 7? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's like, hey, it's not for you to know when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. He could have said, again, no more ethnic Israel. It's only going to be about the church and forget the, the uh, ethnic promises that were made to Israel because they disobeyed. Uh, we're not going to fulfill them or the church is now new Israel. So those promises are only spiritually given to the church. He could have done it all right here and, and put to death a whole lot of theolo- theological conversation and debate, right? But instead he's like, oh, I can't tell you about that. It's not for me to tell you when that's going to happen. I believe alluding to the fact that it will happen at some point, but it's the father's job who will tell you again in verse seven. It's not for you to know the times again, Mark uh, 1332 Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Here's what I get out of that. There are some things that God has not revealed to us. And aren't you glad? that there are some things that he has chosen. I'm not telling you. Aren't you glad that your parents didn't tell you everything about your life when you were just a little kid? But they took the time to explain things to you at important times of transition, like puberty, all right, or teenage years, or going to college, or getting married. There's certain things that more information is brought to you, at the appropriate time, because if all that stuff was discussed in explicit detail earlier, it would be inappropriate, and it would scare you to death. All right, so God, in his wisdom, is like, I'm not going to tell you everything, because I want you to walk by faith. I'm not going to tell you when that future kingdom is coming. I remember, as a kid, there was a book that came out called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. Somehow we got a hold of this book. We were reading it. I was looking at it, and uh, it was a scary book because, you know, basically it's like Jesus is coming back. 1988, it's been 40 years since Israel became a nation, and God works in 40s. He works in 40s, so he's coming back. All these explanations, and I'm telling you, that whole year I about had a heart attack. (laughs) Guess He didn't come back. Nobody knows. The day or the hour when he's coming back, and God purposefully holds back information. Can you imagine what your life would be like if God told us the exact time of his returning? What if God told you that he was coming back on January the 1st, 2025? How would you live these next four years? Would you walk in more obedience or would you be like, I got about three and a half years to do whatever I want. That last half year, I'm gonna get cleaned up a little bit before I see Jesus. You know, if you're not careful, you could start falling into all kinds of planning and preparation based on something you know will happen in the future. But the Bible says you don't know, which means today you better get cleaned up today because there could be a rapture today. And the second kingdom, the second coming is a little bit different than the rapture. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more towards the end of the sermon. But my point is, he, we don't know the secret things uh, belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. They, they, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. You know, a lot of people like to quote Deuteronomy 29, 29. Well, we don't know. We don't know. God, the secret things belong to the Lord. I say yes and amen to that, but don't forget the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse says, but he has revealed to you the word of God and your responsibility is to live out the word of God every single day because we don't know when he's coming. But we know we got this. We got his book. We have his word that is life to us. So we can be encouraged today. We must understand that God wants us to live by faith. And your future is in his hands. And there are some things he does not reveal to us because he wants us to trust him. And he wants us to constantly look to him and depend upon him and to lean upon him. And you don't have to know everything about the future to do that. So I believe that we also read about a future millennial kingdom where Christ will reign for a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, in case you're just like, well, what are you talking about? Millennium? Where is that even in the Bible? The slam dunk for me, if I had to pick one verse, would be Revelation chapter 20, verse four, where we read John writing uh, as revealed to him by Christ. He says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to the judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came, listen, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In fact, a thousand years is mentioned like eight times in those first seven verses of Revelation chapter 20. And I I think the spiritual kingdom of salvation that we live in today culminates into a millennial kingdom on earth where Jesus will reign bodily in Jerusalem on earth for a thousand years. And this is a kingdom that will be restored to Israel but only to believing Israel. I believe this kingdom is something that you and I will be a part of serving and worshiping King Jesus for a thousand years here on earth. And I believe that there will be a final judgment after that. After that, there will be that final judgment that we read about in the Olivet Discourse. I believe that there will be also the idea here of a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. All right, so my friends, let me encourage you this morning that we are citizens of America, but we are also citizens of heaven. And I'm encouraging you today, don't look to America or to America's leaders to give you a great life. Instead, look to Christ, the ultimate king. Just be reminded that while we have responsibilities to be a citizen of this great nation and to do what we can as Americans to fight for our freedoms here and now. Don't ever confuse that with the greater fight of our our, of our heavenly citizenship and that we have a king who reigns. there's no elections in heaven. Praise God. And there's no Supreme Court in heaven, but God's court. And we don't have to worry about anything else. And so let's focus on the reign and rule of Christ more than the reign or rule of any human government. And this passage just brings us back to that realization And it comforts us and it encourages us and it empowers us to be excited about what it is that Christ is teaching here in Acts chapter 1, 6 through 7. He's teaching about God's kingdom. But not only that, in this passage we also see, number two, the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit's power, verse 8, I've told you, this is the theme verse of the whole book. It's a geographical verse where we read in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so here, I just want to bring a couple of points, subpoints, if I can. The power is received in your heart. It is received in your heart. You do not go out and find the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift that God gives to you and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day that God saves you through Christ. Now, at this point, as we'll be unpacking over the next several weeks and months, there was a special filling of the Holy Spirit that came after salvation and we read about that through the book of Acts. No one's denying that. But we're not saying that that is a template for ongoing new covenant ministry because there's too many other passages that simply talk about when you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 17 through 18 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So in other words when you come to the knowledge of Christ you also receive the spirit of wisdom and revelations uh, and revelation having your eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to that which he has called you what, is, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints? Again, this text simply is saying that God gives us the spirit of wisdom and truth. And in return, the spirit of wisdom gives us more revelation from Jesus Christ. And the way the Holy Spirit reveals to us Jesus Christ is through God's word. And it is then uh, through this process by which the eyes of our heart are opened, so that we can see and know Christ as our Savior, and it's by the Spirit that we know the hope to which he has called us. So I'm just saying all that to say the Spirit is at work in salvation. The Spirit is at work in sanctification. The Spirit is at work in us being a witness for Christ. And if the disciples here, maybe you could think they were a little bit disappointed because, they, you know, in 6 and 7, they're really wanting to know, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus is like, I'm not going to tell you. And then you ever notice verse 8, the first word is what? But. You see that, but you will receive power. And he's like, Oh, hold on guys. You're getting too focused on knowing everything about the millennial kingdom. You're you're getting too focused on knowing everything else that, that that's going on right now. Those aren't bad questions. And I, but I can't give you the full, but I can tell you this, you're about to receive the Holy spirit. what an encouraging thing here where he can't tell them about the future kingdom in detail for that was not his job at that point, but there's something else that Jesus can tell the disciples that will bless them beyond measure. And that is that they are about to receive power. And I just think that's really encouraging. Uh, Isn't that so true? Sometimes we're dying to know the future about our lives. Who are we going to marry? And how many kids are we going to have? And what kind of job am I going to get? And how are the kids going to turn out? And we have all these questions and and, and we want to just know all the answers. But Jesus is saying, I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. If you're in Christ today, you've received power in the Holy Spirit to be a witness. And you've received that. It's not something you went out and took. It's something that you received. In fact, that word receive in verse 8 is in the passive voice which means that they can't go out and make it happen. The Holy Spirit is to be received, not sought after. You can't make the Holy Spirit come to you no more than you can make yourself be born again. It's something that God does to you. And the best way I know how to describe it is to place yourself under the waterfall of the Spirit. You know, if you think about taking a beautiful hike in Hawaii, and all of a sudden you see the, 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 the waterfalls there by the side of the road to Hana. And you're like, we're going to stop and just kind of venture out. And we're going to get under a waterfall. And you feel that fresh water just coming down on you. Well, you didn't make the waterfall happen, right? But you could kind of get under the waterfall and it's just pouring out. And you're receiving that refreshing water pouring over you. So if there is any responsibility, I'm just saying, place yourself under the waterfall. And the pouring out of the waterfall of God's spirit through his word, by his grace, and by his sovereign choosing happens. And he pours out on us power. Uh, That's the word dunamis in the original language, which is where you can guess we get our word dynamite from. And dynamite is explosive, it is powerful. Dynamite changes things. And that's why the Holy Spirit, uh, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does in you and through you. Uh, The word dunamis means, quote, giving you potential to function in a certain way, close quote. It means power, it means might, strength, force, or capability. And I don't believe that most of us know exactly how much power that the Holy Spirit has given to you. He he gives us power over sin and he gives us power over the evil one. And he gives us power over being enslaved to the desires of the flesh. In fact, this power that you have in the Holy Spirit is to be received. Secondly, it's to be, your next blank, transformative. The power is transformative in your life. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, verse 8 says, I'm telling you, when he's come upon you, he comes to transform you. He comes to change you. The disciples't have uh, the, the disciples didn't have the same power before receiving the Holy Spirit as they had after receiving the Holy Spirit. After they received the Holy Spirit, they have power like they had never known before: power to preach and power given to them in a special time to heal, power to cast out demons, power to be a witness for Christ. And that same Holy Spirit completely transforms you today. Galatians 5:24 through 25 says and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 4 through 5, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, I'm just saying that the Holy Spirit transforms you. He changes the way you think. He changes the way you talk. He changes the way you feel. He changes your attitude. He changes the purpose of your life. He empowers you to go on the offensive. Get that? Up to this point, the disciples had been retreating for too long. They had fled the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter had denied Christ. All the disciples except John had abandoned Jesus at the foot of the cross. The disciples had been hiding behind locked doors. They were afraid. And they were afraid of what might happen to them. And they were living in fear. And they were living in anxiety. And they were living in a worryful state. And then Jesus reveals himself to them. And even though Jesus will not stay with them long in his resurrected body, he does tell them that not many days from now you will receive power. My friends, if you've been saved by the grace of God, and you've been filled with the same Holy Spirit, it is now time for you and for me to go on the offensive. I'm tired of being a defensive Christian, backing up, backing up, backing up as the world takes everything away from you. And I'm saying to us as a church, it's time to rise up, and it's time to go on the offensive because you have that power and you have that calling, but make sure you understand that the offensive that we go on on is not necessarily a march on the capital. The offensive that we're going on is a march for Christ and for his glory to be a witness. That's what he's calling us to do, to go on the offensive. Your next blank says the power is propelling you in your witness. It's being a witness for Christ. That's what he wants to do in you this morning. He wants you to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word witness is the word martyrs which is where we get our word martyr from. And many of those who have witnessed for Christ have become martyrs over the centuries. A witness is one who, quote, testifies, one who affirms, and one who attests to. And one definition of the word martyr here, of witness, uh, even states that a witness is the one who witnesses at the cost of his life. That's what God's calling us to. To be a witness doesn't just mean like, oh, I try to share the gospel here and there. And if not with words, then with my actions. (laughs) All right, like, God bless you. (laughs) Grow up. Let's move on from the milk. And let's get into a little bit more substance where you stick your neck out. And you lay your life on the line and your reputation as a cool person. And you say, hey, I'm here to die for Christ because he died for me. And I'm here to be a witness at all cost. That's what the disciples did. That's what Christ is calling you to do at the cost of your life. And the reason that the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles was not primarily to speak in tongues and to do miracles, but to attest to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not miss out on what Pentecost is all about. It's about the preaching of the gospel. And sometimes we get distracted to be like, oh, the gifts of the spirit and the miracles and the tongues and the prophecies. Are those things important? Yes. Are they real? Yes. Did they happen? Yeah. I wish I was there. It's incredible. But let's not think that that's the only reason the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came to authenticate the gospel and to empower disciples to preach the gospel. And after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were able to do that in such a powerful way. In fact, Peter was preaching an incredible sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he said in Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up, uh, that we are all witnesses. And so the early preachers preached the resurrection. Paul said, I've got to preach Christ and him crucified. Nobody preached the Holy Spirit. You understand? They preached the gospel as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's role is to shine a spotlight on Christ. And so we understand here the early preachers preached about the resurrection and so should we be. Peter preached Christ right there in the heart of Jerusalem on the southern steps of the Temple Mount. And in Acts 3.15, Peter continued preaching at Solomon's portico in the temple. And he said in Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life whom God raised up from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So every time you see the word witness, it's connected with the gospel. You're a witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 8, Philip then takes the gospel beyond the boundary of Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria as he witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we see the witnesses of the resurrection spreading from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Even in Acts 10, when we read about Peter being a witness to the resurrection to Cornelius in Caesarea, Acts 10, 39, and we are witnesses, and he goes on to tell Cornelius, Cornelius about the gospel, emphasizing the resurrection. Again, Peter says, we are his witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Paul is a witness to the Jews when he was arrested by the Roman tribune and Paul preached, you will be a witness to him for everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Peter was a witness. Stephen was a witness Saul, who became Paul, became incredible witnesses for him. Philip was a witness. So the question really I have for you this morning is, have you received the Holy Spirit? Has the power of the Holy Spirit been transformative in your life? Is the power of the Holy Spirit propelling you to be a witness for the risen Savior? And by the way, let me just say, it starts at home. That's kind of the idea, Jerusalem, home, Judea, Samaria, outer boundaries to the ends of the earth. It starts at home, mom, and how you talk to your kids and lead them to Christ. It starts at home, dad, of you being a faithful spiritual shepherd in the best of your ability with God's help to your family. It starts with each one of us making sure we're taking care of business at home and then we can be more effective in taking the light of Christ to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It was Dr. Oswald J. Smith who famously said, quote, We have seen God's kingdom, uh, excuse me, he said this, uh, the light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. Isn't that true? The light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. And so now we've seen God's kingdom. We've seen the Holy Spirit's power. Let's look just for a few minutes at Christ's ascension 9 through 11 because I want to make a few more connections if I can in this greater text of 6 through 11. Let me just give you five Observations about Christ's ascension and show how there's some more connection here. Number one or A says he ascended from the Mount of Olives and he will return to the Mount of Olives. Verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, that would be Jesus, they were looking on, that would be the disciples. He being Christ was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you Standing looking into heaven, this Jesus who was taken up from you um, into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Five observations. Number one, he ascended, ascended from the Mount of Olives. You say, Adam, I don't see that. Well, look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So we understand from the context that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, one of my favorite places in Israel. Every time you have the opportunity to go, it's a phenomenal view of the holy city, and you get to see the Temple Mount and the dome of the rock there pretty clearly. But you just can't help but think that right there on that same mountain, the Mount of Olivet, that Christ descended from that mountain, and just as he ascended, he will be coming back. We understand that when Jesus said his last, and he had finished all that the Father had given him to do, he was lifted up by the Father back into heaven, where he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you at this very moment. And he ascended from the Mount of Olives. We also know that Jesus will come back at a rapture, and after the tribulation, he will come back in the same way he went up. I think this is a reference to the second coming. A second coming, when, it, when the angels are saying he's coming back, just like he went up. So we have to fast forward past rapture, seven-year tribulation. The end of the tribulation is the second coming, and that's where we read from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, about the second coming, when he says this, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So it's already been prophesied by the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, speaking of the second coming and then the setting up of a kingdom that Christ is going to come back. And when he comes back, his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. So he went up from the Mount of Olives. He will be returning to the Mount of Olives. The second observation would be this B. He ascended personally. He will return personally. This is Jesus in the flesh. He was in his resurrected body, and he will be in his resurrected, glorified body for all time. Before the incarnation, there were theophanies, appearances of God in the Old Testament, more specifically, Christophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, where Jesus showed up In a person like the commander of the Lord's army appearing to Joshua in Joshua 5, the angel of the Lord visiting Manoah and his wife in Judges 13, the fourth man in the fire of Daniel chapter 3. But after the incarnation, every time we see Jesus mentioned in scripture, he is in personal, bodily, human form. That would be true of the resurrection. It's true of the ascension. It's true when Jesus saw, uh, excuse me, Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father in Acts 7. It was true when uh, Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, when Christ returns at the rapture in the clouds and we'll go and meet him in the air. And when he returns at the second coming, when Jesus reigns physically in the millennial kingdom all through and then throughout all eternity of the new heavens and the new earth, we see Jesus is in his glorified body. So, Jesus ascended personally, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says that Jesus will return personally at the second coming when he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And so we have every reason again from that particular prophecy as well as others that he's coming back personally. Third observation, he ascended visibly. He will return visibly with the rapture. Not every eye will be able to see the rapture, but only the effects afterward. But with the second coming, the Lord's return to earth will be very visible. Matthew 24, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's not a reference to the rapture. That's a reference to the second coming. So just as Jesus ascended personally and visibly, he will return personally and visibly for all to see. Our fourth observation, he was received up in a cloud. He will come on the clouds of heaven. Again, verse nine says that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. We could think of it as the Shekinah glory of God. Again, Matthew twenty four thirty says that the son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven. Our fifth observation, he ascended gloriously. He will also return with power and great glory. Jesus ascended in such a magnificent, glorious way, and he will return in that same way as well. Again, Matthew 24, same verse, verse 30 says that he's coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so we're learning here that the ascension of Christ marked the conclusion of his ministry on earth in his bodily presence here on earth, at least prior to the second coming. It it all exalted him, the ascension exalted Christ to the right hand of the Father. And at the same time, the ascension meant that the continuing work of Christ on earth was now placed into the hands of his disciples. And so, are you still standing today looking up into heaven? Because in a a moment here, uh, in this moment here, we read about how they were standing there looking up into heaven, the angels come, men of Galilee, Remember, the disciples were from the area of Galilee. It's like, why are you standing here? Like the same Jesus is coming back the same way you saw him go into heaven. And in a sense, sometimes I think that we can kind of just get stuck for a moment, just standing there, looking up, longing for his return and just waiting idly. And the the inference here is like, hey, guys, he's coming back. So let's get busy doing. He's not here. So we have to represent him here now because he's gone bodily. So we now have the Holy Spirit that's coming and for us has already come so that we too can be a powerful witness to our neighbors and a powerful witness to our coworkers and our classmates and our family and friends. I mean, let me just ask you this morning, when was the last time you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody? Not when did you invite him to church? Not when you, did you say that, well, you know, The big guy upstairs in control, lame, right? When's the last time you said, you know what? Let me tell you about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, why he came, why he died, how he was raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven and he's coming back. And let me tell you about it. Now, some people don't want to hear it, but it doesn't mean that we stay on the defensive like, oh, I don't want to offend everybody. Oh, they don't want to hear it. Oh, you can't talk about politics and religion. No, you could talk about whatever you want to talk about how's that? You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And if you want to talk about politics, that's fine. But I'd rather spend my days talking about Christ and about him being raised from the dead and to be a witness. I would like to be kind of like that Chinese doctor looking out of my bamboo window and seeing a a rope with people's hands that are blind, just coming, come and say, "We, we heard you have good news. We heard that you have the light. We heard that you had the answer for today's problems. I've been so afraid. I've been so blind. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm worried to death. And that you have the opportunity to point them to Christ, to point them to Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, and you don't understand the kingdom of God and the Spirit's filling and the ascension of Christ, I think it's important that you grow in your understanding of those things. But as long as you know Jesus and you understand his death, burial, and resurrection, you can be a powerful witness. And so I'm here this morning to call you to Christ. Maybe you're here today, and part of the reason that you haven't been on the offensive about, your, about being a witness for Christ is because you don't know Christ. You know a lot about Christ. You know a lot about the Bible. You know a lot about Christian things because you grew up in a Christian t- type of home. But if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm calling you today to repent of your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after this last song, we'll have people up here available to talk to you about how you can become a Christian today. Also want to encourage you, if if you are a believer and you're struggling with anything in your life, we're here to pray for you. We love you. We'd love to come alongside you and be a blessing to you in any way that we can. At the end of the last song, please know that we're here to counsel you, encourage you, and bless you with prayer. I hope that you'll consider coming up if the Lord's stirring your heart at this very moment. Why don't we close together in prayer? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to... Take some time and look at the the beauty of the great commission here being fulfilled with the power to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. God, we know we don't know all things about the future but we're begging you, God, to help us to understand better your word and our calling and our responsibility right here, right now to be powerful witnesses for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray for our country. We pray for our community. We pray for our church that you would help us to be faithful witnesses. And we want to get involved. Lord, nobody's saying we don't want to be involved in anything else out there, but we just want to make sure that this all comes first and that Christ and his glory comes first, and that we would bleed and die for Christ like nothing else. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to be faithful witnesses. God, would you be exalted in our closing song as we continue to worship you? And would you stir in the hearts of your people, those that you're calling, that they would feel the freedom and the joy of coming forward to receive sound counsel that would continue to point them to the resurrected hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.